The rest of us are going to be in Matthew 26 today, so if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 26 or the 26th chapter. If you're new to the Bible, maybe we just gave you one this morning. You can find a table of contents. You probably even have a page number there in the bulletin. You can join us. We're studying the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, and we're in chapter 26. As you're turning there, I'll just let you know that today we're going to be talking about the Jewish holiday called Passover. We're not going to be talking about Passover because we're Jewish. We're not going to be talking about Passover because God wants Christians to go backward and adopt Jewish festivals. We're not going to be talking about Jewish Passover so that you can better understand your Jewish friends so that you can love them and reach out to them, though that would be a good idea. We're going to be talking about Jewish Passover because... Jesus' last Passover, which is where we're going to be focusing in, provides a perfect opportunity to emphasize the greatness of Christ. In fact, I believe it was designed to emphasize the greatness of Christ. So we're talking about Passover in general, but we're talking about the last Passover that Jesus participated in here on earth, and it exalts Christ in an amazing way, as if it were designed to do that. Because it was. Now, all of you have heard Passover before, I think, because to this day, Passover is significant for the Jewish people. Uh, come uh, uh, April this year, we'll hear people talking about Passover. Passover was something that was instituted by God back in Exodus 12. And thousands of years later, it was significant in the life of Jesus. And a couple thousand years later, it's still significant for Jewish people. We're not going to take the time to read through Exodus 12. I'd encourage you to do it. I think it will cause you to love Christ more. So, so it's, it's, it's something I want to do even right now, but for the sake of, of time, we're not going to read Exodus 12. But having heard of it, maybe some of you know exactly what it's about, and you could give a lecture about it. But let me just give you the thumbnail sketch of Passover. Passover is this extremely significant Jewish holiday, second to the Day of Atonement. And some would even say for sociological reasons, it's even bigger than the Day of Atonement in the Jewish people's eyes. It's huge. Well, back in Exodus 12, it's huge because what happened originally, the reason this whole thing was instituted, is because God's people, Israel, were enslaved, in bondage, persecuted, not free to worship God as had been prescribed by the Egyptians. And there was all kinds of problems surrounding that, as you, as you can imagine. And it's interesting to read what leads up to Exodus chapter 12. But then finally, if you will, the the straw that, that, that breaks the camel's back, finally God promises that He is going to send His angel of death. And it is going to kill the firstborn in every house. Unless you do what the people of God are instructed to do, and that is to sacrifice a lamb, and that is to apply the blood on the house as an atonement, as a, as, as a means of providing satisfaction so that the, the angel of death passes over and doesn't bring death to that house. And it is connected to that Passover that God works it so that Egypt releases Israel and they're free. They've been longing for freedom. That's what they wanted. And that's the significance 
that God didn't kill their firstborn, but He did shake up the Egyptians to such a degree that they finally broke and they freed the Israelites. And so now, during the life of Jesus, for thousands of years, this is what the people have been celebrating. They've been consumed with the great festivities, with the great event religiously, the great event socially. The Passover, it's grand, it's great. We're remembering our freedom that God is the great deliverer God. And here a couple thousand years later, the Jews are still celebrating Passover. Well, with that in mind, and I'll have to say more about it, we see some of its significance, and now we move to Matthew 26, and we'll look at verses 17 through 30, where we find some, some multiple different ways in which the final Passover points to the greatness of Christ. The first way that the final Passover emphasizes the greatness of Christ, number one, is because it is now His time, meaning Jesus' time. And I know that's kind of an obscure point for an outline point, but it comes from the text. Because Jesus is going to say, during the Passover, He is going to say in the verses, as we'll read them in just a moment, it is my time. That's big to say during Passover. It's big to say because what He goes on to say after, it is my time, I think it's in verse 18, is deliberate. He's talking about Passover is His time to die. That's because He is the great Lamb the ultimate Passover lamb. So this first obscure point that I think we'll see there in the text is it's significant, it points to the greatness of Christ because it is His time, emphasis on His. Now just one more thing before we actually read, just to bring some of you up to speed who haven't been here with us, and I know it was a long time ago, we've been in Matthew for a long time, but just to remind you that throughout Matthew, Jesus keeps talking about going to the cross. He keeps bringing up the cross. He keeps bringing up the fact that he's, he's going to be betrayed and He's going to suffer and He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And every so often He brings it up and He brings it up again and He brings it up again. And now, right? Now, Jesus says, it is my time. Passover is my time. Passover exalts me. This is for me. Makes me want to read Exodus 12. Convenience says we won't, which is a shame. Let's keep moving. Let's go ahead and look at the text. Matthew 26, verse 17. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, which is inseparably linked to the Passover, Mark's account, Luke's account tells us this is also the time when they're sacrificing the lambs. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Where should we go to prepare? This is a huge event. This is where families gathered. This is where we're remembering what God is as a great deliverer God. This is a huge event. Where, where do you want us to prepare for this, Jesus? Verse 18. And he said, Go into the city to a certain man. Mark 14 tells us, A certain man carrying a water pot. Now, first you think, how in the world can we find a certain man in Jerusalem with some two million plus people crammed in? Oh yeah, look for the guy with the water pot. Well, first of all, obviously Jesus knows where they're going to go and how they're going to approach the city. But one thing that we don't see right away is a man carrying a water pot? He's going to look like the guy who's getting in touch with his feminine side. 
Now, Jesus didn't say it that way, but that's the way I said it. Men didn't carry water pots from what we know. If they carried water, it's going to be in the individual, you know, the leather sack, satchel. Like those wine flasks you see people have on the, on the ski hill. A little different, but you get the idea. He's the one carrying the water pot. He's going to stand out like a sore thumb. Okay, that's the guy we're going to look for. And say to him, it says in verse 18, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. My time is near. That is to say, Jesus is on mission. What is happening is supposed to be happening. Passover. My time. Things are going according to plan. Mark 14 gives us a little bit more specifics, uh, some more of the specifics. It says, you're to say to this man, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 15, and he himself will show you a large upper room where we get upper room discourse furnished and ready, prepare for us there. And you get the idea that, that there's some secrecy going on. Why do you have to go and look for the certain man with the water pot? And, and we learn in another gospel that, that he actually sends two of the disciples to go. It's somewhat under stealth. Why would that be? Well, it would be that way because, again, over and over again, Jesus has been making sure that he would be crucified exactly at the right time. At his time. There's some secrecy going on because he wants to make sure that everything unfolds exactly according to his perfect plan. Verse 19. The disciples, Peter and John, according to Luke 22, did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. They got everything ready. They got all the food there. They got everything all set up. It's a major event. And again, think about the major events that you have. You know, in our family, it's Christmas Eve. It's our great, great time to get together. We look forward to it all year. And we have certain traditions that we look forward to. Maybe that's Christmas Day for you. Maybe it's a different day. I mean, this is the day. This is the family day. This is the religious holiday where you've got all of the things that you do out of what God has told you to do back in Exodus. This is a great, great event, and so they need to prepare for this great, great event. And the amazing thing is we're going to see that Jesus says it's His event. It's even better than they would have ever imagined. It's His time. We move on to a second thing we need to highlight here that emphasizes the greatness of Christ in the final Passover. Number two, even His betrayal is according to plan. What's impressive about Jesus' last Passover is even the betrayal that happens during Passover is according to His sovereign design. I can't wait to get into application on that one. But have it in your mind, just as we read the text, have it in your mind that Jesus wasn't at the wrong place at the wrong time. That Jesus didn't have bad luck. That Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstance. That Jesus didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He's going to be betrayed even according to His perfect plan. I'm going to probably say this over and over again. I don't know. I hope I do. Jesus is not just a man of destiny. Jesus is in charge. I suppose if there's one thing for you to know when you leave here, other than the gospel that gets emphasized, is for you to know that Jesus Christ is in charge of everything. 
He's in charge even of his own betrayal. Let's go ahead and look and see that. Verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Now that would be startling enough if you were there, right? It would be, definitely be startling. To us, it's not quite as startling because we know the story. We know how it ends. Plus, even in our immediate context, we already saw that this is going to happen. Look at Matthew 26, verse 14, just up a little ways. But, but they didn't all know this. It says, Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him, which is what you paid if you had a slave who was accidentally killed, so it's not much. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So we're not surprised, but they would have been surprised. So let's keep going. Verse 22. Being deeply grieved, as we can't even imagine, being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely, not, not I, Lord. You can only, you know, guesstimate what that would have been like and what it would have felt like to be there with him celebrating the most significant family event, the most significant event they knew in their culture and they're loving it and they're loving Jesus and there they are. And Jesus says this, it's like dropping a big bomb in the middle of the room and they're crushed over it and they say, surely, surely it's not me. Implied answer, it's, it's not me. Verse 23, and he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. At which point Judas is choking on his falafel, right? He's been doing this all in secret. Jesus knows. Now at first glance, I I might read this and I would read it and, and think... Jesus just publicly exposed Judas in front of everybody because they were the ones who were sharing a bowl. It's probably not the idea. Typically, it's, 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 you know, it's family style. And it's not just our family style where you've got one bowl. You're actually eating out of the same bowl. You're, 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 you're double dipping, okay? And we say there's no double dipping in our house unless we're really close friends. But there... <laughs> I shouldn't say that. <laughs> they're using the same bowl to dip and to eat out of, and, and, and they're all there together. Well, if it's a smaller group, they're, they're, everybody doesn't, not only, not only do they not get their own bowl, there's just one bowl with certain food in it, and another bowl with another kind of food in it. Now, there's 13 of them there, so no doubt they probably would have multiple bowls. But the idea probably is not that it just so happened that Jesus and Judas were sharing the same bowl, or Jesus had his own bowl and Judas dipped in it. Not the idea. In fact, I don't think this is a public exposure at all. Because I think if this were a public exposure, they would all kill Judas. I think think that the idea is a bit broader than that. The idea is someone in this room, Jesus knows who it is, absolutely. But to say publicly, Jesus is saying, someone in this room, one of my friends who I eat with, who I celebrate the Passover with, somebody here is the one, which is outrageous. It's one of you. 
Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 24 then says, The Son of Man is to go just as... I love that. That, that. that just pronounces sovereign control. How is this happening? Just as it is written of Him. Just as the Old Testament says, I'm going to Calvary. It doesn't cite the text. could be one of multiple. He could have multiple in mind. In other words, Jesus is going to the cross by divine appointment according to the Bible. He's not a victim of circumstance. It's going to happen according to plan, which emphasizes His greatness in all of this. It is according to Acts 2, according to the predetermined plan of God that He will go. Just as it is written, He is in charge. But let's make sure we remember, that does not therefore mean Judas is innocent or not responsible, not culpable. That's why he goes on to say in verse 24, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is happening according to divine design, but oh, let me make sure this is clear. He's not getting off scot-free because God is sovereign. Woe to that man. That is to say, damnation be upon that man's head. Whoa. There's just about only one thing I can think of that is worse to say than that, and Jesus says it. He's going to go on say what he says at the end of verse 24 it would have been good for that man if he had not been born I bet you won't find a, a more severe insult than that anywhere why is it so severe why is Jesus saying damn that man which is what woe means Why is he saying it would have been better if he would have never breathed a single breath? It's really hardcore. It's because he's not just conspiring against in order to execute, in order to assassinate the president as bad as that would be, or a king as bad as that would be, but it's the king of kings. You see the the, the contrast? That man... That worm of a man, that that small man, that man by whom, verse 24, the Son of Man will be betrayed. We looked at this earlier. Son of Man, official title taken from Daniel. That's a messianic title. That man who's going to betray the Messiah, the King of Kings. This is, this is an awful man. This is a, a horrific thing to have happen. There's, there's no greater thing to happen than that. It's despicable. Judas can't say, well, you know what? Since God is sovereign, kind of like the Romans 9 argument. How can he find fault? Because he's sovereign. He does find fault. God is sovereign. 
Humans are responsible. Don't know exactly how that works. Neither do you. So don't tell me you do. (laughs) Jesus is saying both. It does help to remember you are students of the Bible, which I hope is true of you if you're a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian. It does help to remember and have it in our minds that, that God is dealing with a world full of sinners who are opposed to Him. Everyone is a sinner, and therefore we do bad things. And so it doesn't make God bad to take sinners and accomplish His purposes. You just have to keep that in mind. Well... Then look, verse 25. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't flee? Isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't blow the whistle on Judas? Hey, guys! It's him! Knowing full well, based upon what he would know that Peter was capable of. Remember Malchus? You know? He cuts his ear off. He's a bad aim. He's going for the throat. I mean, Peter didn't handle handle a knife well. But no doubt, Judas is in the room. Jesus doesn't run and hide. And Jesus doesn't blow the whistle on Judas, knowing full well what they would do to him. Why? Because he's sovereign and in charge. Jesus is in charge of the Passover. Jesus is in charge of his destiny, not a victim of circumstances. All of this causes me to say, Jesus Christ is great. By way of application now, I mean, this is for me to say, this is Jesus Christ who I trust in for my eternal destiny, who's in charge of things. This is the Jesus who I trust to work all things together to good for my good, Romans 8.28. Is this the Jesus that you've trusted? Is this the Jesus that you are clinging to? Or, 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 or is the Jesus you're clinging to some sissified who knows what? He's the king and he's in charge. Causes me to, to worship him, causes me to trust him. He's no victim. He's the king. If need be, you, you, need, to, you need to trade your Jesus in today and get rid of the, the sissy idol Jesus that you really can't trust and get the real thing. I would encourage you to do that by the grace of God. Be impressed with this Jesus, not some other Jesus. You know, I, I like the analogy of sometimes you'll see where a police department, they have like a, I don't know what they call it, but it's like a free day, where if you have illegal, you know, ammo, illegal guns, unregistered stuff, you can come in, you can turn it in, you know, and they'll give you some sneakers. You know? <laughs> or, and they won't hold you accountable. It's like a free day. Well, today on your way out, we have a room. Okay? Nobody will be looking, but when you leave today, you need to trade in your idle sissy Jesus, who's not in charge of anything, who can't be trusted, and you need to pick up the real thing. Fair? Nobody will be watching. All eyes closed, all heads bowed. Get rid of the sissy. Now, I'm kind of making fun and being, and being a little silly about it. 
But folks, we need to remember who Jesus is. Jesus is in charge. That's why we worship Him. That's why He's capable of being our great Savior. All of this is unfolding at Passover to show that He is in charge of everything. And I love Him. I love Christ. And I love Him more when I get to see Him in places like this. Let's move on to a third and final highlight of the Passover that exalts Christ. Number three, shows the greatness of Christ because He elevates the Passover. This last Passover is amazing. It shows the greatness of Christ because He elevates the whole thing by making it about Him. He makes the Passover all the more splendid, all the more amazing. It makes me want to go to Exodus 12 and read about the Passover. It makes me want to read the Old Testament and read about all those things that happened there. Because when I do, and I see how the story ends, I see He's great. He elevates the Passover. And in one sense, when I say, Jesus elevates the Passover, you should hear that and say, what? Because you're thinking... Passover? How could it be better? If you're thinking with a Jewish mindset, which none of us are. But put yourself in a Jewish mindset. I mean, that, that's your best holiday. That's your, that's your best family event. It's your best religious event. I mean, it is the apex of everything. Some two million plus people jamming into Jerusalem and the surrounding community. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to be remembering God's great faithful deliverance. Passover, and you're going to gather and you're going to sing, you know, the golden oldies, the Hallel Psalms, the songs you all know and love. Oh, see, we can kind of identify with how we like these things. This is an amazing, amazing celebration. I mean, it's so amazing again, it's still happening today. How could he elevate Passover? He could elevate Passover because it's ultimately he's going to point to, it's ultimately going to be because he, based upon his work on the cross, he is the Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's what's going to happen. He is the one who John the Baptist saw and said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's got Passover written all over it. He's the one. He's the one. Let's read about it. Verse 26. While they were eating, it's Passover meal, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples. Fairly normal. Fairly standard. Okay? But the next part is anything but normal. Verse 26, he goes on to say, And said, take eat, this is my body. I don't think he said it like that. But I said it like that, so you saw, this isn't normal. This is never, ever, ever, ever has happened. Lest you be stoned as a blasphemer. For all of those thousands of years, people, families, fathers in their homes 
leading their family as God told them to in Exodus 12 in the Passover meal. Yes, they prayed. Yes, they sang. Yes, they ate. Yes, they drank. But for Jesus to stand up and break bread and say, this is me? This is my body? This is, this is totally radical. He's elevating the Passover because he's making it about him. He's making it about that. He's making it about the cross ultimately and giving himself and the breaking of his body. Verse 27, it gets just, it's even more radical. And when he had taken a cup, presumably the third cup of Passover wine known as the cup of blessing and given thanks, that's pretty normal. He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Here comes the radical part for this is my blood of the covenant. Luke's account and 1 Corinthians 11 say the same thing. He refers to it as the new covenant. Wow! Which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Let me connect the dots for you. A Jew who was biblically literate knew about the new covenant. They're waiting for the new covenant. The new covenant is going to be better. How could it be better? We don't really know. But there is a new covenant that's coming that promises a kind of forgiveness that we've never had before. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34 says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Hebrews 12, 24, connecting the dots, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Also Hebrews 9, 15. All of that to say, this is what they've been waiting for. All of that to say, can I be so bold as to say, all of that to say, that Passover that had happened thousands of years before, back in Exodus, ultimately was pointing toward the new covenant promise fulfilled in Messiah through His death, the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood for the forgiveness of sins. Isn't it good? I like Jesus. You should like Him too. He's amazing. This is all about Him. It's all about Him. He's elevating the Passover in an amazing, amazing way. He's the climax of it all. Everything points to Him. He's the one. He's the deliverer. He is is the substitute, the substitutionary atonement that would satisfy God's just wrath once and for all. That's the new covenant. Read about it in Hebrews. This is great stuff. This is great stuff because it shows how great He is. The mediator of the new covenant? I've got more and I have to, finish, I have to, I have to do more, but I just kind of want to stop. I just kind of want to stop and let's do small breakout sessions and talk about how great Jesus is. This, is the, this just couldn't be better. Makes me want to go read my Old Testament too. Makes me want to see the significance of what it is pointing toward. This is fabulous. Well, there are a couple of additional items we need to talk about regarding what we've seen here. 1 Corinthians 11 sheds some more light on this, and that is that this is supposed to be repeated then after his death, and that's what the church is supposed to do, and is supposed to repeat this, at least in form. Until he comes back again. 
So we call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. But it's rooted and grounded in Passover. But it's not a once a year thing. This is something we do regularly, ongoingly, and we're going to keep doing it until He comes again. Because why? Because we see Him as the magnificent, amazing Christ who died once and for all as the mediator of the new covenant, securing our eternal redemption. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to dwell on that. We're supposed to think upon that. We're to make it a regular part of everything that we are and everything that we do. And that's good too because it exalts Christ and it exalts His cross and His love for us. But that's not all that 1 Corinthians 11 tells us. It's not all that Luke 22 tells us because in both of those texts, it tells us why. It tells us a little bit more, and I don't think it's any real, really any different from the old and the Passover, but, it, but it, it blatantly tells us why we're supposed to do this. Why we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why, are we, why we're to celebrate communion and to do so till the very end until He comes again. And let me just tell you, it's not because by doing so, it over and over again propitiates the wrath of God. Because of the single work of Christ, once and for all, read Hebrews, He perfectly propitiated the wrath of God, satisfied the wrath of God, and we're to continue celebrating what He has done for us. And there's a key word in Luke, and there's a key word also in 1 Corinthians 11, and a key, a key word you can hear right now. Do this in remembrance of Me. Do this in remembrance of Me. Maybe to use a synonym or two. Do this as a meditation. Do this as something to have your mind focus on and dwell on. Because by so doing, your mind is focusing on and dwelling on and you are meditating on my perfect substitutionary work on your behalf, which is, as I said, finished. We're to focus on the cross all the time. Christ who is our life. We preach Christ crucified, even though people want to hear other things. It's all about Him. To live as Christ and to die as gain. It's all about Him. And so we're to be, even formally, through the Lord's Supper, with simple objects, remembering what He has done. This isn't some sort of yawning, oh yeah, I remember back when. I mean, I just started writing things down. We're, we're, we're remembering that, that through His atonement we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have reconciliation, imputation of righteousness, justification, sanctification, hope, eternal life, new birth, and that great little word, etc. We're remembering its grandeur. We're remembering its greatness. We're remembering its sufficiency. But remember, it's tied back to Passover. And what has been going on for a long time. Now there's something in me that just wants to stop there. But there are a couple of things that need to be said about what this is not saying. I'm not going to do a full-blown study. We've done that before. But this is not saying, it is not hinting at, it's not leaving any room for whatsoever to conclude again that by doing this, it somehow satisfies God's justice. That's been done. Furthermore, it is not suggesting 
that the bread that Jesus held in His hand and broke turned into the body of Jesus. It is not suggesting that the wine that He had in the cup that they shared was turning into, as He was holding it, maybe as He was passing it, as it was coming into their mouth, however you want to look at it, was changing into His blood. If you just read the text, read all the accounts, and how about this? Please do this. Do yourself a favor and put yourself in their place. Okay? And you will never, ever, ever come to the conclusion that the bread literally was His flesh and that the wine literally was His blood. Put yourself in their shoes. I know that He says, this is my body, this is my blood. He's speaking representatively. We do it all the time. Put yourself in their shoes. Jesus is sitting there with you and He hands you bread and says, this is my body. What are you thinking? You're thinking representation. He passes you the cup of wine and what are you thinking when He says, this is my blood? You're thinking representation. You absolutely are thinking that. Without question. So why would it change from then to now? Also, if it helps, I think it does. Not in a million years would Jesus, who is Jewish, talking to his disciples at Passover, nonetheless, if you're going to act like a Jew, boy, you're really going to act like a Jew at this holiday. They're Jewish. Would he ever, ever, ever suggest to them, encourage them, to drink blood. Right? Read the Old Testament. Expressly forbidden for Jews. I've been reading Leviticus lately because of preparing for Sunday nights and it becomes clear and obvious right away. Leviticus chapter 17 verses 10 to 14 would be one example. For Jesus... To ask them to drink blood would be for him to ask them to violate the Old Testament law and to sin. For Jesus to drink blood would be for him to violate the Old Testament law and to sin. Why did Jesus come here? Jesus came here, first of all, to submit to the law perfectly. Matthew chapter 5 says he fulfilled the law. If Jesus is a blood drinker, if Jesus believes in transubstantiation, then Jesus is a sinner. And Jesus didn't fulfill the law, and He's not the Savior, and you shouldn't worship Him. All I'm asking you to do is turn your mind on. To be biblically informed and to turn your mind on. Put yourself in their shoes. Think like a biblically literate person. Then don't put the focus there anyway. The focus is as you have these simple elements, as you're remembering the Passover even was designed to remember God's deliverance, you're just doing what the Passover did, but in a better, more full sense, you're remembering through the actual elements what God did on the cross once and for all. Meditate on that! To do anything else is to take away from that. 
Read Hebrews. Read Hebrews 9. Read Hebrews 10. Read Hebrews 7. Well, as great as it is that he's the Passover lamb, there's a bittersweet statement that comes next in verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on. And I stop prematurely there to say, that would have been a big bummer. Okay, it's your favorite holiday. It's your favorite time. It's the best of the best of the best. And he just told us about the new covenant and he's the one. I mean, this is great. This is awesome. You you, you wouldn't trade this in for anything if you were there. This This is the high point of everything. And then he says, like he keeps saying, Surprised they didn't rebuke him. They did in the past until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So it's bitter at first and then it's sweet. It's good. Oh, you're, okay, I'm not going to be with you. We're not going to share in this together, but I do want you to know that when you're in my Father's kingdom, when we're in that kingdom together, we once again will share such sweet fellowship and we will drink such wine together again then. Ha-ha! I like this Jesus. And you should too. How good is that? What a great promise. What a splendid promise. He couldn't have made that promise if if what he just talked about were not true. There's physical separation, but it's for a time. I like what one person wrote when they said, just as the first Passover looks forward, not only to deliverance, but to settlement in the land, so also the Lord's Supper looks forward to deliverance and life in the consummated kingdom. What a day that will be. And then verse 30, after singing a hymn, likely Psalm 118, many would believe, one of the Hallel Psalms that were sung during Passover, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Some believe that Jesus would have actually been the one who led singing, even with responsive singing as he would sing part of Psalm 118 about God's greatness as the deliverer of God, and they would respond with hallelujah, or they would respond perhaps with the next verse. I thought Tyler did a pretty good job this morning, but he'd be out of a job. (laughs) Can you imagine? I don't think anybody would complain about the style that day, do you? (laughs) Or the song selection. (laughs) How cool would that be? You're in the room there with the one who has the perfect voice, by the way, and perfect song selection, perfect style selection, the God-man who loves you and he's just told you about how he's going to, to pour out his blood for you and have his body broken for you, and then he's there leading you and you're singing about God's goodness. Isn't that good? I wonder if we're going to get to do that in heaven. It doesn't say. But I know we will worship Him and we will worship Him as the worthy Lamb and I know He will be pleased with what we say and what we do. Read Psalm 118. I won't sing it for you. But read Psalm 118 and you could see some of the highlights in there and you could see perhaps some of the things that would have been emphasized. Jesus is in charge. I like Him. You should too. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for 
the spotless lamb who was given. Not only that, he gave himself to take away our sins. As Psalm 118 says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Lord, what we say to that is simple. Amen. And amen.